It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. Two moms looking for inspiration wherever wherever we we can can find it. it. Welcome to episode 117 of Tangential Inspiration Podcast. This week is so very exciting as we're introducing our new co-host, Colleen. Colleen and I have been friends for years as our youngest kids have been together for the last four years. They're both great kids and are just so sweet together. This will be her first time doing a podcast. I'm looking forward to our adventure together. Get ready for some great stories. I'm going to talk about the Tuskegee Airmen and an an incredible World War II all-black squadron and David Attenborough, a filmmaker, naturalist, and environmental activist. Colleen's going to talk about Mel Robbins, a fantastic motivational speaker whose five-second rule is changing lives. Welcome aboard, Colleen, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So getting to know you. Okay. High of last week and the low of last week, Colleen. The high of last week is probably getting to see my daughter. She's at University of Oregon, and we went last Saturday and had breakfast with her. Uh, she is on the University of Oregon dance team. They've been and traveling. Amazing. She's amazing. <laughs> They've been traveling, and uh, I have been missing her. So we went yeah. and had breakfast with her last week at this cute little cafe in Eugene. I wish I'd remembered the name, but <laughs> and I had delicious. no idea that you guys were going down too. Nick was just like, "I'm going to head down and see Sophie today." So, and then yeah, so it was fun. fun. We took them both okay. out and just chatted. We played a really fun game in the lobby, mm-hmm. which was I can't think of what it's called. It's the one that old people play on ships. Oh, sh- a shuffleboard. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> It was fun. a smaller version of that in Sophie's lobby. I didn't realize, I guess, that it has sand on it. Oh, it's kind of salt. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And fun. the four of us played that, and it was really, Aww. really super fun yeah. just fun. to laugh and, and play around. And see her. Yes. Yes. And we do miss Nick, too, now that he's not around as much, so it was <laughs> fun to see him, too. <laughs> so that's your low. You haven't gotten to see my son. Right. Sure. <laughs> no. Yes, no. that's it. Yes. No. Yes. Uh, my low is probably a day this week here in Oregon where it was just gray. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and I think it's coming back tomorrow. Ooh, that is hard today, for me. but like twenty four when I headed out to class. You know, I've been complaining to my older daughter about how cold it is, and it's minus <laughs> where <laughs> yeah. she lives in Idaho. So yeah. I really can't, can't complain, complain to her. No, yeah. no, we can't. But. Complain. I, even if it's cold, if there's some uh, a break of blue sky, mm-hmm. that makes me yeah. happy. So yeah. a little bit of sun. Did the guy see his shadow today? What am I thinking he about? He did not. So six more weeks. The the groundhog. Yes, so thank you. The groundhog. Six more weeks of dang it of winter. Mm, I know. I think I didn't look that up on purpose. Like I was <laughs> probably in denial. Not. Probably not. <laughs> Before I get going on my short, Amy actually had sent me back in episode 11. She talked about Melinda Gates. And now Melinda Gates has a website called momentoflift.com. And she's putting inspirational books on there. So it'll have different books, like not all nonfiction. So different inspiring books on there. So that's exciting. And then back in episode 67, I talked about Bessie Coleman 
who was a black pilot back in the 20s, she actually like walked on the wings of her plane. She would go up, walked on the wings. She couldn't get her license here, so she went to France because they had, you know, more stuff there. So got her license there, came back to the States, and they called her Brave Bessie. Anyway, wow. long story short, they finally have her Barbie out. Oh, so that's they amazing. Have a, yes. Bessie Coleman, Brave Bessie Barbie out. And then also, I found this adorable story because Colleen just clipped our cat's nails. And this little cat named Munchkin, how cute is he? So this cat was found and he had grown into his actual body was the plastic from this Munchkin any angle baby bottle. When someone found this cute little stray orange tabby with this plastic grown into her, they rescued her, they took her in, and her picture went viral. So the Munchkin Bottle Company got in touch with the itty-bitty kitty city and paid for Munchkin the kitty to get, like, the best care possible. And then on top of that, they donated $2,500 to the itty-bitty kitty city cause and on top of that so not only is the cat doing well but the munchkin company they went back and you know worked on research and figured out things so that now they have packages and 478 of their munchkin cups that will tear off so they're animal safe they won't be they won't choke on the plastic so i'm just so excited one little cat made such a difference i love cats i (laughs) grew up without pets And now I'm the crazy cat. (laughs) Cats are growing on me. Keeping with Black History Month, I wanted to share a story about a group that's always interested me since I first heard about them. Sadly, it was only a couple years ago. It's a little embarrassing, but I think I first heard about the Tuskegee Airmen in Night at the Museum, Battle at the Smithsonian. Do you remember that movie? I do. I learned about a really important part of Black History from... A ridiculously silly movie about exhibits coming to life in a museum due to a magic Egyptian tablet. Least I'm aware of them, and I'm grateful for that. We've talked a lot about segregation in different contexts on the podcast, and in World War II, the military was no different. The experience of black soldiers, nurses, mechanics, cooks, and other support staff was very different from their white counterparts. Black units were separate from white units, and black military personnel were not allowed to mix with white military personnel for the most part. Many blacks were not allowed to serve, and most who did serve never went overseas. Black nurses had to fight to be accepted into the military, and the few who were accepted were only allowed to treat black personnel. Black military members were not allowed to use the clubs and stores that were available to white military members. They weren't allowed to be officers, and they were usually given menial or dangerous jobs. The U.S. military never had any black pilots. Several black pilots tried to become flying observers in World War I, but were rejected. What do you mean by flying observers? What does that mean? So basically, these pilots would just go up and survey things, look for stuff, since they didn't have radar or anything at the time. Okay. So this started a movement within the black community to get the U.S. military to enlist black Americans who wanted to train as aviators. The NAACP worked to get the military to accept black recruits into their flight programs. One of the people who worked to get blacks accepted into the pilot program was Thurgood Marshall, who I talked about in last episode 116. 
1939, Congress passed a bill containing an amendment that allowed a small amount of funding to train a small number of black pilots at civilian flight schools. According to the 1940 census, there were only 124 African-American pilots in the U.S. There were many restrictions on who would be accepted into the program, and any unit created would be segregated, with white officers put in charge of the black enlisted pilots. One of the programs that trained black pilots was based at Tuskegee University in Alabama. The applicants for the program were given rigorous physicals, IQ tests, and psychological training. Doesn't that sound like fun? I would not make it. No, I wouldn't either. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't even apply in the first place because no. I'd be sick. But there were <laughs> three too. main positions, pilots, navigators, and bombardiers. The men were put into different positions based on the testing. The requirements for black airmen were more rigorous than those for the white men. While that prevented many black applicants from progressing into the program, it also had the unintended effect of making black airmen higher quality candidates than their white counterparts. One of the the airmen, Coleman Young, who would later become the first African-American mayor of Detroit, said, They made the standards so high we actually became an elite group. We were screened and super screened. We were unquestionably the brightest and most physically fit blacks in the country. Which is pretty, yeah. I mean, something for them to be proud of. Yes. As uh, Amy talked about in episode 14, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt inspected the Tuskegee flight program in 1941 and flew with the African-American chief civilian trainer, C. Alfred Anderson. Upon landing, Eleanor Roosevelt very publicly stated, well, you can fly all right. And while many Americans thought her flight with the black crew was inappropriate, it gave the program some much-needed publicity and public approval. Ms. Roosevelt even did fundraising for the program to help build a better field for them to practice on. On March 22, 1941, the 99th Pursuit Squadron, comprised of 14 black non-commissioned officers and a support group of 271 black enlisted men, was formed. It was commanded by white Army Captain Maddox. The enlisted men were trained in performing all the ground support tasks necessary to support aircraft. Five of the black non-commissioned officers were sent to officer training school. Those five passed officer training school and became part of the first black Army Air Corps officers. At this time, the Air Force was part of the U.S. Army, so they were not a separate branch yet. Okay. They separated into separate military branches in 1947. I did not know this before. (laughs) Me neither. (laughs) The 99th Pursuit Squadron continued to train at Tuscany, Alabama, and was the only black flying unit in the country. In July of 1941, 13 men were selected as the first class of air cadets and started pre-flight training, strafing ground targets. The unit had grown to six times its original size, and the Tuskegee Air Base was built up to accommodate the growing numbers. The director of training at the Tuskegee Army Air Parish, in opposition to the racism that was common in society in the military, petitioned to allow the Tuskegee Airmen to serve in combat. Ready, they needed to have other highly trained staff. As a result, the Army allowed its first black flight surgeons, its first black aviation medical examiners, and other positions that had previously been denied to black soldiers. Despite the segregation rules, this and programs previously only available to white soldiers. Despite all were still not allowed to command black units, and white officers were kept in charge. In 1943, the 99th 
Pursuit Squadron was deemed combat-ready and was shipped out to fight in North Africa. Their first mission was to attack an enemy garrison volcanic island. This garrison needed to be cleared to allow the Allied invasion of Sicily by sea. Although this was their first combat mission, it was so successful the garrison surrendered with 11,000 Italians and this was the first success of this kind by any unit. The squadron was moved to Italy where the 99th escorted heavy bombers doing raids into Czechoslovakia, Austria, Hungary, Poland, and Germany. Their record the 99th, the Red Tails, or Red Tail Angels, because of the unique red painted tails on their planes. The 99th was assigned to be part of different units throughout the war, giving support to bombers as well as dive bombers and strafing ground targets. The unit also had numerous dogfights with German jets. The 99th set a record of destroying five enemy aircraft in under four minutes. They also had the distinction of doing some of the longest bomber escorts, traveling 1,600 miles into Germany and back to destroy a tank factory. The success of the 92 pilots were trained in Tuskegee from 1941 to 1946. 355 were deployed overseas. 84 of the Tuskegee airmen died. 32 were captured as prisoners of war. They flew 1,578 combat missions, destroyed 112 aircraft in the air and another 150 on the ground. Flew 179 bomber escort missions, destroyed 950 railcar trucks and other motorized vehicles. They also destroyed one torpedo boat. This is quite the record, one of the best for any units in all of World War II. The unit also received one silver star, 96 distinguished flying crosses, 14 bronze stars, 744 air medals, and at least 60 purple hearts. My grandfather was a pilot, too, oh. in, in World War II. Mm -hmm. And I've always wanted to get his war records. And I, yeah. Because apparently he was also behind enemy lines. Mm -hmm. But he would never tell my dad because apparently mm -hmm. it was classified. Oh, or, wow. And, and I know you can get those records, and yeah. I need to just yeah, hunt them down. Yeah, you need to. And probably he had a little bit of post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes, he I did. Mean, it probably, yeah. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. So after World War II ended in 1945, and despite the unit having one of the best records in the military, the Tuskegee Airmen still faced racism in the military. They were harassed by other units. After the official military policy of segregation was ended by President Truman in 1948, those who knew what the Tuskegee Airmen could do wanted to draw them into the newly formed Air Force, which I think is so cool. Many of the Tuskegee Airmen went on to instruct and train other pilots. Daniel Chappie, James Jr., rose through the ranks of the Air Force to become the first African-American four-star general. Wow. Marion Rogers became a program developer for the Apollo 13 project. Cool. And four other Tuskegee Airmen made the rank of general. In 2007, President George W. Bush awarded the Congressional Gold Medal to the 300 surviving Tuskegee Airmen. That's amazing. Isn't that cool? Mm -hmm. That is really neat. So there are a number of movies that I need to add to my list to watch besides just the Night at the Museum. <laughs> um, there's a 1995 Tuskegee Airmen starring Lawrence Fishburne. Oh, and, I love him. Um, I do, too. I can't believe I haven't heard of this movie. Yes. And in 2012, Lucasfilms did a Red Tails which I'm not surprised that I, I don't watch a lot of movies, so I've got to put those on my list. Also, if there's any violence, I'm yeah. a little out. Yeah. <laughs> I just yes. watched, and I had to watch it in pieces, like okay. doing other things, was okay. um, All Quiet on the Western Front. It was so well done, and I know it's up for all sorts of awards. Okay. But it was 
very intense because it is very violent, very yeah. violent. And just, but I think people should watch it to know what these soldiers did for us. It's really like the beginning of Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, right? I haven't seen that because of that. And I had heard yeah. about that opening scene and just watching it was really, really hard, but it did give me a new appreciation yeah. for just how frightening they must have felt mm-hmm. coming yeah. into that situation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just watching it on TV. I can't. Yes. You know. And these, a lot of them are kids. Yes. You know? So these brave men were pioneers and patriots. They fought for a country that didn't treat them fairly and proved they could do everything their white counterparts could do. And a lot of them could do it better. Their unit opened the door for military advancement for black soldiers into new positions and ranks. These guys were war heroes in every sense of the word, and I think everybody should know about them. Hello there. So I'm so excited. First... I'm so excited. I'm going to try not to interrupt. But okay. <laughs> uh, Teresa probably knows this. I'm not a big social media person. I always call myself a lazy social media person. But I do like to scroll, and I do try to really keep my scroll happy. Yeah. Oh, I feel that's with important. Good yeah. Exactly. It's mostly fitness and <laughs> good things. Yeah. And inspirational quotes. And inspirational quotes. And cleaning. And, cleaning. Yeah. Yeah. Organizing. Yeah. Yes, I really I'm enjoy that. Good. So I came across Mel because I love seeing things that I can just look at, scroll, Quickly. and see right yeah. there. And one of the things that caught my eye that she had said nine thoughtful text messages to send to someone you love. Mm. And I just love mm-hmm. that. Because I need to be a more thoughtful person. I am not oh my the most gosh, thoughtful you do person. Not, but you're, you're very thoughtful, but we all could, I guess, work on it. Yes. I tend to be in my own brain. And I love that I could just, you know, I love that I can save things on Insta. Mm-hmm. And that it was something I Wait, could Wait, how do you through. save? Because I just take a picture of it. You hit, I have a million you hit pictures. the little flag. It looks oh. like a banner. Oh, okay. Okay. Hit that. See, Colleen knows saved. more social media than I do. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> These are the nine things that she said, and I will buzz through them really quick because I usually say, that's great. Yay, you. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying I'm better at that. So these are the nine things that Mel Robbins talks about to text to somebody that is thoughtful and loving or if they're having a bad day. The first one is, I admire your resilience. Mm. You have been through so much and you are stronger and wiser because of it. I really like that. Very thoughtful. And it's not about appearance or, right. you know, it's about what's inside. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Second, your work ethic is inspiring. You should feel proud of your hard work and dedication you put into the things that are important to you. Love that. And it'll motivate someone to work harder. Right. With that. Right. Number three, you have the best sense of humor. You never fail to make me laugh. <laughs> this is one of my favorites because I love to laugh. Yes. And more of us need to laugh. I I love to laugh. I love to smile. Yeah. That is one thing I missed during COVID was seeing people smile. Yes. Yes. Although I've been told it's a little disconcerting how I smile at people, but I don't know. (laughs) But I really do like to smile at people, and I like when people smile back. Number four, I always learn new things from you. Thank you for exposing me to new experiences. This is a good one for today, Teresa. Number five. I have a feeling I'm going to get a text from Colleen after this. (laughs) Thank you for exposing me. (laughs) To new experiences. 
Uh, number five, I love how passionate you are, inspiring to see you go all in on projects, hobbies, or relationships that are important to you. Number six is my second favorite. The first one was laugh. The second one is you bring so much happiness into my life by simply being yourself. Mm, I love Thank that. you for being you. I love that. I did too. That could work for so many people. You could text that to so many people. Yes. Yes. Seven, you are so creative. I love seeing all the incredible things your mind creates. I have a friend like that that does the most amazing cards. Mm, mm-hmm. One time I said to her, though, Maria, I'd rather clean a toilet. <laughs> but you're and work on all those sits cards. She there and makes these beautiful cards and spends hours uh, on them. And yeah. She's so creative. Yeah. It's so amazing. Number eight, this one, this one is specifically for you. I love how confident you are. It inspires me to be more confident in myself. Oh, so, sorry, there was eight instead of nine. But that's right. Nine. It's a good number. So, those are eight. I also, I, I really like, too, on Instagram, how you can just go in and look at those. I'm not putting in my email address. Right. I'm not putting in my right. name. But I can save that. Yeah. I know she has other great ones that I like. Something. She's just awesome to follow on Instagram in yes. general. Because yes. she's just very inspiring and motivating. Yeah. Because she's real. And I like how sometimes... I see her reels or her lives and she's laying in bed. Yeah. <laughs> or just getting up and brushing her teeth. Right. Or she's like, I don't want to do this. But yes. she's like, I'm a motivational speaker. I've yes. Got- so. And that's, that, that takes me to where she's at and how she got to where she's at now. Mel Robbins is 54 years old. She's actually a so lawyer. So she's a youngin. She's a youngin. youngin. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's a lawyer, which I did not know. She I doesn't come across as no, lawyerish. No, she doesn't at all. No. At all. She went to Dartmouth College and Boston College Law School. She's been married as long as us. Oh, 1996. wow. 1996. And she has two children. And they're about our children's mm-hmm. ages. They're right They're right up in there, which I like, too. And she includes yes. some stuff. With, I mean, yes. she's very real about parenting, too, which yes. I appreciate. And I wish I could, I would have written this down for the podcast, but there's at one point where she was talking to the kids saying, what What do I do that you don't like? Or what do parents do that you don't oh, like? Okay. And it, it wasn't mean. Mm-hmm. It was just a really interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. And it was good to see myself in that yeah. conversation. I appreciate that so. you change it to parents. What do parents do? Because it would, it, it might not just make moms. me a little defensive <laughs> if I was like, what do I do? The list would be long. Yes, yes, <laughs> um, definitely. And what I like about that too is we're all, not we are all, but usually people our age are parenting adults. And yeah. that's new it's, ground. Yeah. So. And in ways it's harder. Yes. Way harder. Yes. Yeah. But she says about seven years ago, she hit rock bottom. She says in her marriage, finances, career, her self-esteem was all in the gutter. But she would not believe that at all about her. She's just so vibrant and confident and out there. Right. Right. I really related to her, though, because she was talking about how she was having a hard time getting out of bed. And that is Mm -hmm. my number one thing. Uh, Jeff was, my husband, was giving me a hard time today about something I'm going to need to start doing Mm -hmm. about 30 minutes every morning. And he said, well, I'll help you. And I said, I'm not going to be up when you're up. <laughs> he says, well, you can get up a little earlier. And I said, probably not. <laughs> so I, I related to her. Yeah. So that morning she was trying to get out of bed. And she that's when she came up with her five-second rule. Mm-hmm. She counts back from five and then says, I'm getting up. I'm do or it. get up or yeah. do it. Not hitting snooze. Mm-hmm. And... 
I started reading her book called The Five Second Rule, which mm-hmm. is what inspired me to talk about her today. And even though I have to admit, I'm still hitting snooze sometimes. <laughs> Guilty here. Yes. Too. Yes. I love snooze. Yes. So when Mel first appeared on a TED Talk, this was in 2014, she talked about the five-second rule. Mm-hmm. When I looked this up, this talk has been seen 11 million times. Wow. I think I've seen bits and pieces mm-hmm. of it, but I actually went back and watched the whole thing. It was awesome. Yeah. It and was obviously 11 million people 11 million. are with you there. Yeah. Yes. That's amazing. The actual name of the TED Talk is How to Stop Screwing Yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but that sounds just like her. I mean, she yeah. tells it like it is. Yes. That's part and of I what loved I love it. about her. Yeah. And she said something else. I wrote down a couple things that I really liked about this talk, along with the five-second rule. Mm-hmm. She said, how do you get what you want? It's simple, but it's not easy. Mm-hmm. And I really That's very like deep, that. but it's very true. Very deep. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Simple, but not easy. That's so true. She also talked about the F word. Her F word is fine. Oh, yeah, I'm fine. How are you? Yeah, fine. Yeah. Yeah. Are you really? Are you really? Yeah. Fine. Really? <laughs> That's you, a good point, too, though, because yeah. people were just so, people need to be more open and. We don't want to be a burden. Yeah. That's, socially. Yeah. That's what yeah. she said. She said, of course, you're going to say you're fine. Right. Because you don't want to you be a burden to anybody. asking. That's right. Yeah. They that's want right. to move on. Yeah. And so she went past that, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, with the fine word. And she also said, all day long you have ideas that could change the world. And that's true. I couldn't think of one thing Mm -hmm. that I thought of today that could change the world Mm -hmm. personally. I know, but you're doing things all the time for people. So that, that ripple effect, that's the thing. The, you know, you don't see it, but other people feel it. I did drag my husband out the door at 10 o'clock last night. Our neighbor's... (laughs) Water meter was overflowing. Oh, no. I would have been. I would have been asleep. <laughs> She's a single parent that oh. lives across, and she had called me oh. about it. And I said to Jeff, "Get on your coat and hat. <laughs> Bring a flashlight." <laughs> you guys made the world a better place, right there. She also talked about to go back to that snooze button. We do all have an inner snooze button, and so every time we push down that thought. That's our inner snooze button. Uh, you Not know, that dealing thought, with it. Yes, yeah, that yeah. thought about changing the world, and we hit snooze, essentially, yeah. mm-hmm. on that. And she said, set the alarm for 30 minutes early, throw off your sheets, and start your day. <laughs> I'm not ready for 30 <laughs> minutes earlier. <laughs> so this morning, I did five. Good, yes. So I thought, Five okay, counts. Five. Yeah. Permits of five. I love yes. that. yes. And she said, do it. This is physical force that is required to change your behavior. And then this turned into a book called Mm -hmm. Five Second Rule. So. Well, and that's what I love about it is that, you know, her countdown, it's Mm -hmm. so, it's like you said, it's so Mm -hmm. simple, Mm -hmm. but it's really hard. Yes. It's hard to count down from five and get out of bed. And just get out of bed. Throw back the sheets. Yeah, exactly. So. Also, it's been cold this week, as we mentioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't really want, I have a really heavy blanket yeah it's one hard, of those yeah. weighted blankets yeah i think it's 17 pounds oh it's fantastic yeah mine it got all wadded up in one end so oh 
Yeah. Probably good. You, maybe you will get it, throw off those sheets and get <laughs> yeah, out of easier, bed. Easier. It's not a workout. To yes. Do well, <laughs> yes. that's awesome. Yes. Yeah. She also, it's, it's interesting, she just recently released her second book. It's called The High Five Habit. Oh. I had not read this book. Mm-hmm. And it was on the Kindle this week mm-hmm. for like $1.99. Mm-hmm. So I downloaded it and started reading mm-hmm. that. The High Five Habit mm-hmm. by Mel Robbins. And the premise is to cheer yourself on, which I'm not really mm-hmm. great about either. Doing that, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. I'm, and you're you're really good at this too with cheering other people on. But as yes. far as the self cheering, go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody That's once true. told me in a work interview, mm-hmm. if you don't toot your own horn, nobody else will. And that's so I true. I hate that. I've never that forgotten true. that, yeah. though. And it was yeah. probably 27 years yeah. somebody told me that. And mm-hmm. it is true. But it it's is true, really but hard. I hate it. I yeah, hate I'm that. not really that kind of person. No, neither am I. Um, but Mel's right that way, too. She's right. So she said, I'm going to dive deeper into this book. <laughs> But she basically says, get up in the morning, put your hand up to the mirror or whatever. I probably won't put my hand on the mirror. Because that would get it dirty. That would yeah. get it dirty. Yeah. But at least going Over. through the, yeah. you have a microfiber yeah. cloth in your hand. <laughs> but I I really do want to do that because I think also as women, I mean, I'm stumbling out looking at myself in the mirror every morning, yeah. and, you know, noticing things. And I think... That would be a good idea to yeah. also. I do like to work out in the morning mm-hmm. too, and I think that would be really good to cheer yourself on to get you pumped for. Oh, your I workout. should be pumping you up because for whatever reason your workouts are showing up on my Apple Watch, and so oh. it, it's like yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been working out I, an hour the last two weeks in the morning, and I'm yeah. really enjoying that. Yeah, time. you're doing great. But obviously, I have to get up a little bit earlier <laughs> than I just was five minutes. In the past. Just five not minutes. quite, but I. I even want to get up a little earlier yeah. than that. Yeah. So Mel Robbins can be found on Instagram, TikTok. She is at Mel Robbins and on Facebook as Mel Robbins. She's awesome. Yeah. She also has a podcast. I did not know that. I have not listened to it yet. Yeah. And she I've does heard little her interview, snippets. But I didn't know she, she does little snippets oh, okay. on Instagram. Uh-huh. And they always look really good. Mm-hmm. So I do need to yeah. dive into that. Yeah. And that is called the Mel Robbins podcast cool growing up our family had dogs we did end up having a cat too my dad (laughs) came home from the christmas tree farm and and my sister talked him into a kitten so we had a cat and mostly dogs and that's pretty much my limit with pets okay so your mom had four kids and how many pets (laughs) a lot a lot (laughs) yes Oh, my mom is a saint. Was a saint. This is why is. me coming from four kids, we had no pets. <laughs> no, because no. my mom, I think, was the opposite. Yeah. And I don't like creepy bugs. My mom is so good too about oh the spider. She called him like George or something up in the corner. And I was I I don't kill them, but I do holler for someone to come get them. I kill them. <laughs> So I don't like creepy bugs or slithering snakes. That's the other mm-hmm. thing. Dave, my brother, would chase me with the snake. Oh. Spiders were a big no for me when the kids wanted, you know, like a tarantula. No way. That uh, thing might no. get out. Yep. And Have you still, not seen Home Alone? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I certainly can appreciate a cute or beautiful animal. Those slither things I want to keep at a distance or behind, you know, on the other side of a screen. 
I like animals. I never want to have any harm happen to those snakes or, like I said, no spiders. But um, my dad took me on a fishing trip, and I'm sure he thought... With worms? <laughs> no, he probably... He, he like, does his own lures. It might have had worms, actually. I'm going to have to ask him. But we're out on... It was actually at Hague Lake, and we caught the fish. I'm excited, I'm sure, until I see my dad clubbing the fish, and I screamed, no! And it, like, I'm sure resonated all through, and my dad was mortified, and I'm sure his dream was shattered that his firstborn <laughs> child would be his fishing buddy, because that did not happen. Having my kids especially having boys, it pushes your limits. What was once unthinkable actually becomes pretty normal. My Thank oldest, goodness Colleen had two girls. <laughs> yes. yes. My oldest has always loved animals, and I found myself, you know, lifting rocks so they could poke around underneath for bugs or worms or whatever, and you can't act, you know, you have to try and act cool with it. Brave. Like, yes, exactly. If there was a garter snake, I, you know, hollered and let them try to catch it uh we did a lot of zoo trips and having my mother-in-law who had access to the reptile room at the high desert museum in wow. bend yeah so that they could hold all sorts of slithery critters right close to me could just, she just take them by herself or um they she knew the people back i mean she volunteered there and my so, point is i would insist on it <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one at a time, and she follows all the rules, but I did not hold any snakes Good. or spiders or anything that was bad Sounds there. Sounds about right. But we have lots of pictures of the boys, and they loved it. Wasn't my favorite thing, but like I said, when you have kids, your limits change. Sure. All of my kids have loved animals, and as they learned about them, I did too. I read books about animals to them. I watched movies with them, YouTubes about animals. Do you remember Zimubunfu? Yes, the lemur. I do. Yes, they love the Crap Brothers. Mm -hmm. um, Jeff Corwin, Steve Irwin, they were all huge into that. And as they got older, you know, we watched documentaries about animals and nature. And one of my oldest kiddos' heroes is the voice of many of the amazing animal documentaries. And the more I learned about this naturalist legend, the more he became one of my heroes as well. David Frederick Attenborough's smooth, calm British voice is the voice that pops into my head when I think of nature documentaries. But even more important than his beautiful narration of some of the most incredible nature documentaries is what he's done for the natural world in his career spanning more than eight decades. Wow. He's 96. Okay, I was going to ask you that. Okay. <laughs> so at 96, Fantastic. he doesn't get out in the field much anymore, but he still has the voice for the BBC's Natural History Unit. I'm going to just play a little clip of his narration so people can be familiar with his work and get an idea of what this man sounds like when he's describing nature. You'll recognize him. I've been lucky enough to travel all around the world, to all the continents, and to some of the most remote places on Earth. From the Australian outback to North America's grandest of canyons. I plunged down into the depths of our seas and flown into the upper limits of our atmosphere. 
David Attenborough is not just a narrator. This guy's been all over the world as a naturalist, a biologist, a filmmaker, an explorer. To give you an idea, he's made more than 400 trips to 94 countries, and he's traveled over 1.9 million miles, which is the equivalent of 763 trips around the world. I also read that he doesn't consider himself an animal lover. He's just interested in them, and he doesn't drive. Because he didn't pass his driving test. So that was an interesting little tidbit. <laughs> that is interesting. <laughs> For his The Life of Bird series on the BBC in 1998 alone, he traveled 256,000 miles to get footage of various birds around the world. This guy's definitely been there and done that. He searched out animals in swamps, ancient forests, jungles, deserts, mountaintops, caves, undersea, and on Arctic tundra. And while he's mostly directing and narrating from his home in the UK, nobody can doubt Attenborough's credits as an in-the-field researcher. David was born on May 8th, 1926, in Isleworth, England. From a very young age, he had a thirst for knowledge, so it was convenient that he was raised on the campus of the University of Leicester, where his dad was the principal of the college, which is like I guess a college dean. Okay. Here in the States. Okay. Um, David Attenborough's the middle of three sons. His older brother, which I did not know this, was Richard Attenborough, the actor of John Hammond, the billionaire who opens Jurassic Park. Oh, okay. Okay. He's also been in uh, many other things, like the 1994 version of Miracle on 34th Street, but most of the stuff I, I haven't seen. I love that movie. Oh, me too. Richard Attenborough died, his brother, in 2014 at the age of 90. And his younger brother, John Attenborough, was an executive with a car manufacturer, Alfa Romeo. He died in 2012. David's parents, Frederick and Mary, also fostered two young Jewish refugees from Germany during the war. Which I think is very admirable. Yes. David spent his days as a kid collecting fossils, interesting rocks, which reminded me of my children, and natural specimens. At age 11, he made money by catching newts and selling them to the biology department at his dad's college. This bothers me. It reminds me of us doing frogs back when we were in school. But he said it was his secret, and they were, like, in the pond right next to the call, right next to the campus. So, right next to the biology room. I don't so. know why I had this vision in my mind of, like, it's a little lemonade stand. <laughs> I know, with this news. I guess the college needed a bunch for experiments, and David provided them. He was always exploring and spent his childhood roaming the university campus, poking his head into every bush and tree and looking under every rock. When he was 10, David, with his brother Richard, attended a lecture on campus given by a conservationist known as Gray Owl. Gray Owl was a former trapper who was now trying to save the beaver in Canada. He was an expert on the animal and plants of Canada and warned the way that people were using the resources of Canada that an ecological disaster would follow. It really resonated with David, and it has stuck with him, you know, even 85 years late, 86 years later. And as a side note, apparently Gray Owl was a prominent conservationist who gave lectures and wrote books and worked to develop conservation programs with the Canadian National Park. He spent his adult life promoting conservation, and it wasn't until after his death that they discovered the Gray Owl's real name was Archibald Stansfield Bolani, and that he wasn't an indigenous person as he claimed to be. So, but he was born in England, and when he immigrated to Canada, he took on the persona of Gray Owl and fabricated a whole backstory about being a Native American. Okay. Native Indian. But was he 
was he still doing good things? He still was doing okay. good things. Yeah. So I guess yeah. the rest I, I can live <laughs> with. <laughs> so it, that obviously damaged his reputation a bit, but Attenborough still admired the man. He had the sure. same opinion as you. Sure. Who first introduced him to the conservation movement and made a movie. Apparently there's a movie called Grey Owl that was made in 1999 with Pierce Brosnan. Oh, I should watch him. that one. I know. Yes. Yeah, it has to go on our list. In 1945, David won a scholarship to Clare College in Cambridge, England, to study geology and zoology. He obtained a natural science degree, and after graduating from college, he was called up for duty in the Royal Navy, and he spent two years stationed in North Wales. After the Navy, David edited children's science textbooks for a publishing company. He applied for a position at a radio talk show producer with the BBC, but he was rejected, which is pretty amazing because he's known... You know, they're all we've got plenty of British accents here. <laughs> yes. We don't yeah. need you, we don't need more. His resume did, however, end up on the desk of Mary Adams, who at the time was in charge of the factual broadcasting department of the BBC's brand new television service. This was 1950, and David didn't have a TV, and he had only watched one program on the television in his entire life. He took a three month training program and began working behind the scenes as a producer. Mary Adams didn't want David on the camera because she, she thought his teeth were too big. So he was told he wouldn't be good in television, which oh is, goodness, terrible. is terrible. I know. He produced a few shows, including a quiz show called Animal, Vegetable, Mineral. In 1950, he married Jane Elizabeth Ebsburn Oriole. They stayed married until Jane's death in 1997, and they had two kids together. Robert, who's a senior lecturer in bioanthropology at Australian National University. Not surprising. Right. And Susan, who's a primary school headmistress. His first foray into nature programming came when he produced and presented a three-part series called Animal Patterns, which included footage from the London Zoo and interviews with a naturalist who explained how animals used their markings for camouflage and even finding mates. Through his program, David gained connections with the UK zoo community, and in 1954, he produced Zoo Quest. This only makes me want to go see zoos in the, in the United Kingdom. Yes. Bucket list. We need to put that on. I'm, I'm in. Attenborough was intended only to be the producer, but when the host became suddenly, unexpectedly sick, David stepped in. ZooQuest was an episodic series of short nature documentaries. Attenborough would travel with the staff to the London Zoo to capture an animal for the zoo. And while this practice would be frowned upon now, as I'm frowning right now, this was pretty typical for zoos back in the yes. 50s and 60s. Yes. Along the way, David and the zoo staff would talk about other plants and animals in the area while they searched for the animal they wanted to capture. Isn't that just terrible? I can't even imagine. Ah, so, after the animal was captured, they'd bring the animal into the studio and have experts talk about it. This program was hugely popular in the UK and was one of the first nature programs that really tried to educate the audience about animals and ecosystems. Did they let them go after they talked? I would hope so. <laughs> but I think they stayed in the zoo. Okay. Hopefully they had a good life. And they I got lots so. of food and less predators. Yeah. Later, David would write books about each series of ZooQuest. In 1957, the BBC created its Natural History Unit, and Attenborough was asked to join it based on his work with animal and nature programs. Attenborough turned them down as the unit would not be London-based, and David didn't want to uproot his young family. So he created his own department, 
the travel and exploration unit. This allowed him to continue working for the Zoo Quest and also do travel documentaries. I think that's awesome. That I do too. That he picked his priorities. Right. And still made them work. Right. In the early 60s, Attenborough started working at the BBC part-time, still working on documentaries, but also going to school to get a postgraduate degree in social anthropology at the London School of Economics. Before he finished his postgraduate degree, he returned to work for the BBC, but this time as an executive. David made sure to insert a clause into his contract that allowed him to occasionally make a documentary. (laughs) During this time, Attenborough did a documentary on the elephants of Tanzania, and the cultural history of Bali, and went on an expedition in New Guinea that made contact with a previously uncontacted tribe of indigenous people. He also did programs that focus on art, history, travel science, drama, and comedy, including the famous Monty Python's Flying Circus. Have you seen that? I have not. Okay, neither have I. I haven't seen any of them. I think Jeff tried to introduce me to them. (laughs) Yeah. I must have fallen asleep or something. I'm not sure. Yeah. A lot of recollection of it. I don't even think I got that far. (laughs) Color television was just starting out while David Attenborough was a director of programming, so he had to devise television programs that would make use of the new technology. Attenborough was very successful as a television program director, and the BBC was considering him to be the head of the BBC. David called and told his brother that he didn't have the heart to continue in the programming, and he wanted to return to making programs. He resigned from his job as a program director and went back to creating programs. It was during this time he began his first epic nature series. While filming a show about nature and animals in Indonesia, Eastward with Attenborough, which I think is a cute name. Yes. He was writing the script for a larger scale production, something that had never been done before. And with the success of Eastward with Attenborough, the BBC joined with the American company Turner Broadcasting, which I love Turner movies. Right, me too. To fund Attenborough's big project, Life on Earth. Life on Earth was like nothing that had ever been made, and it created a new standard for wildlife documentaries. Where nature documentaries had previously been considered light entertainment, Attenborough envisioned these documentaries to be serious and scientifically accurate, which I appreciate. I actually enjoy that. Yeah. More. You learned something. Yes. This attitude allowed him to get scientists to invite him on projects, creating opportunities to get footage never seen before anywhere in the world. Attenborough also looked at the documentary subjects through a cinematographer's lens. His team came up with new ways to get shots of animals and plant life that showcased the world in all its natural beauty. In one case, a camera operator patiently waited almost a hundred hours to film a tiny frog. The Darwin frog. I'm trying to think if that's one week. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't last an hour sitting there waiting for this frog. Yeah, no. I mean, is that night and day? Oh, forever, forever. Super curious. Wow. But in this case, the Darwin frog incubates its eggs in its mouth, and the camera operator was there when it opened its mouth and released hundreds of tiny frogs into the wild. Yeah. Colleen's making a face, and it's one that that. I I agree with. How far away was that? I can't eat while I watch these nature shows, for sure. In another episode, filming gorillas at a sanctuary in Rwanda, David was discussing how the great apes used their opposable thumbs. The scene devolved as two young gorillas started to play with David, and one eventually tried to steal his shoes. As David noted, the shoe thief was able to do so because of his opposable thumb. 
You can find the clip on YouTube, and it's absolutely adorable. That sounds adorable. <laughs> so, the 13-episode series was an international hit with around 500 million viewers worldwide. It was nominated for four British Academy of Film and Television Awards, which is the UK version of an Emmy. It also made David Attenborough a household name in the UK and around the world. Five years later, Attenborough released The Living Planet. Similar to Life on Earth, The Living Planet focused on ecology and how plants and animals adapt to their surroundings. He and his crew traveled to Sudan and had to land and take off in a plane without the aid of a runway. Can you imagine? They hiked into the Himalayas because there was no road access to the region. They climbed an active volcano to get shots of it erupting. And in one episode about... Exploring. Is this the secret life of Walter Mitty? <laughs> One of your favorite movies. It sounds like it, doesn't it? Yes. He could have made that. It's like that Sean Penn guy yeah. that's up there <laughs> yes. waiting yes. for the white yes. tiger. Uh, yes. Um, in one episode about exploring the sky, Attenborough took a trip on NASA's plane known as the Vomit Comet. Over my, You couldn't pay me enough to go in that. Nope. No, it simulates weightlessness in space by going straight up, followed by going straight down at high speeds. Life on Earth was also an international success, and importantly for the BBC, a monetary success. The Life series followed the success of Life on Earth and the Living Planet. Life in the Freezer covered the animals and natural history of Antarctica. Over my dead body, would I be up there? Too cold. I watched that show on, I think it's the Travel Channel or National Mm -hmm. Geographic, Mm -hmm. Life Below Zero. Miserable. I can't imagine. Uh, no. Yes. Life below zero. Keep in mind, these documentaries were being filmed in the 1990s. He was 67 at the time when he was trekking through Antarctica. In 1995, he was asked to do something with plants. He didn't think a plant documentary would be very interesting since plants just sat there. Attenborough made the plant come to life by using time-lapse photography. And actually, they're really good. I think I've seen some of yeah, those. It is truly amazing. Very interesting. Yes. And plants, seeing like the way they interact with bees. Yeah, and, yeah. Yes. Plants were shown growing days and weeks in the time-lapse photography, and it also showed how plants can move over the course of a day. In 1998, he began his 256,000-mile trip to film the birds of the world for the life of birds. In 2002, the life of mammals used infrared and low-light cameras to capture nocturnal animals that were rarely ever seen. 2005 brought new and better cameras for macro photography, allowing Attenborough to capture very small animals for life in the undergrowth. Life in Cold Blood in 2008 covered reptiles and amphibians, which another one I can't eat when I'm watching stuff like that. Yeah. During all this time, Attenborough continued to work on other documents. How did he have time to do all of this and be a, a dad, parent, and a uh, husband? So he continued his work on documentaries as well as his nature documentaries, as well as a number of other documentaries. He was also popular for narrating documentaries for other documentary creators. Say documentary like eight million times. Right. <laughs> so Alistair Forthergill. Oh, these British names. <laughs> Mouthful. Who had worked previously on documentaries led by David Attenborough was doing his own series called Blue Earth. Forthergill asked Attenborough to narrate the series. I watched it with my kids and loved it. The filming's amazing. And of course, Attenborough's narration is fantastic. It's really one that I recommend everybody watch. Nothing else, just for the scenery. Yes. Also, its sequel, Planet Earth, which is 
the first nature documentary shot in high definition, and it's equally breathtaking. In 2015, David traveled to the Great Barrier Reef in Australia to make a documentary about the reef and how it's in decline. He had previously visited the reef in 1957, almost 60 years before. As David got older, he traveled less and less and let the new crop of documentarians who grew up admiring his work do the work of trekking around the world in search of new animals or scenic wonder. He continues to narrate the documentaries, and his voice is synonymous with amazing nature documentaries. He even did a narration during COVID. David hardly left his house during the height of COVID and recorded in his dining room with heavy blankets propped up around as sound dampeners. Sounds like us. We can, which I was going to say, which we can relate. I've only listened to a handful of the nature documents that David has been involved in. There are so many. And the popularity of David's documentaries ensures that millions of people have an opportunity to see other parts of the world and be exposed to animals, ecosystems, and people that they wouldn't ever have an opportunity to see. They also get to see how delicate nature is and how the balance of nature is linked from species to species and to the environment itself. I'm sure that his documentaries have inspired countless people to rethink their attitudes towards nature and the environment, as well as instilling a love of nature in multiple generations. David's contributions to nature go beyond just educating millions of people about our world. He's an activist as well. In his programs, Attenborough often showed and discussed how modern civilization was negatively impacting the natural world, from loss of habitat to overhunting to pollution and climate change, while some activists criticize Attenborough for not being more aggressive with his message. Attenborough believed that it's better to get the message across to as many viewers as possible rather than alienating viewers by being too heavy with the gloom and doom, which I right. admire that. He's right, right I think. Because sometimes gloom and doom is too yeah. much for me. Yeah, and then it just shuts you down. You don't feel like you can do anything. Right. So you just right. turn off. Um, he's also taken many leadership roles in the environmental community. He started speaking out at different world forums about the impact of climate change and has argued for a vegetarian or reduced meat diet, noting that the planet can't sustain billions of meat eaters. David is hopeful about future generations saying, young people, they care. I can't say it in his voice, but just picture. They know that this is the world that they're going to grow up in, that they're going to spend the rest of their lives in. But I think it's more idealistic than that. They actually believe that humanity, human species, has no right to destroy and despoil regardless. For his work over many decades, Attenborough has been twice knighted in England He's been awarded 32 honorary degrees, and in the 2006 UK Reader's Digest poll, he was voted the most trusted celebrity in the UK. That's amazing. He has a polar research ship named after him and all sorts of animals and plants that they've named after him. He has a butterfly, dragonfly, goblin spider, weevil, snail lizard. I, I mean, the list all goes, those except for yeah. the goblin spider. <laughs> oh, long <laughs> list. He's received countless awards, um, just too many to list. And despite all the awards, David has always been humble, giving the credit to his team, which I appreciate that. Me too, because it does take a lot it of does. hard work for yeah. those It's a team effort. To happen. Yeah, it's yes. not just him. He acknowledges that they take the risks. They sleep in the swamp. A hundred hours. <laughs> for toads or yes. dogs coming out of the mouth. Yes. And they spend hours waiting to just get the right picture. David's teams, in turn, have said how easy it is to work with him. That he's always ready to lend a hand, even if it's just making tea for the crew. How oh, awesome I is love that. that? 
He's also well known for his storytelling and usually has his team cracking up with the stories around the campfire or the kitchen table. He said one time while working in Paraguay, long before the invention of the digital camera, the team spent six or seven weeks trying to get the perfect close-up shots of different animals and plants. They sent the film in to be processed only to find the lens had a defect called a hot spot that left an overexposed spot on the middle of every picture so all of the shots were unusable also isn't every story better in a british accent (laughs) yes i mean for sure i'll sit around a campfire (laughs) a hundred hours to listen (laughs) and wait for the frog (laughs) he can just keep talking in the background Another time in Venezuela, they were filming rare plants that grew in remote places. The plan was to fly up to the top of this mountain in a helicopter and get some pictures. The pilot spoke very little English, and they spoke very little Spanish. So the pilot dropped them off at one spot and the equipment at another spot. Oh, no. The pilot didn't realize, due to poor weather, that the people in their equipment were in separate, separate <laughs> crevasses. So the weather got worse, and it took them hours to get to their equipment. When they got to the equipment, they found they only had one tent, and there were eight people, all eight men. In crammed, a two-person tent? Yes. Four-person tent? Crammed into a two-person tent for the night as a heavy rainstorm hit the mountain. Oh. It was... <laughs> so it's not like you could even say, hey, I'm going to be good. I'm just going to sleep in my I know. stars. I know. It's no. pouring. You're, yes. No. On top of you're it in, You're in the two-person tent. Right. Oof. It wasn't until later the next day that they could be picked up again. The two-person tent with two people (laughs) is even a little small for me. (laughs) And with all these years studying animals from all over the world, which one is his favorite? Monkeys. David has always loved monkeys because, as he puts it, they're so much fun. And having faced raging hippos, dangerous crocodiles, venomous snakes, and other deadly animals, which animal is he most scared of? Rats. According to David, if he sees a rat, he's the first person running out of there. Obviously, he hasn't been in a room with me because I would be the first person. I've got the chair. I'm jumping on the chair. You're on your own. I have to say, I've enjoyed many hours watching, or I guess listening, to David Attenborough with his nature films. You can tell that he loves the natural world, and the footage is simply beautiful. I never thought a documentary on plants would be interesting, but somehow he's figured out a way to do it. The passion this man has for the natural world is contagious, and I'm glad he shared it with the world. This man is truly a legend, and I hope he keeps going for a long time. The only way to save a rhinoceros is to save the environment in which it lives, because there's a mutual dependency between it and millions of other species of both animals and plants. David Attenborough. It's surely our responsibility to do everything within our power to create a planet that provides a home, not just for us, but for all life on Earth. David Attenborough. Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com or leave a comment on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories, follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week. Bombardiers.